One of the overarching themes of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is God's initiative. God chooses to create and ultimately chooses to redeem what had been created after the fall from grace. Not only were the man and woman expelled from Eden, all creation stands in need of redemption. God creates and God redeems through his own initiative. In the Gospels, especially in John, we see the reflection of God's saving initiative in Jesus. He was in the beginning with God, says John. All things came to be through him, and without him nothing came to be. On a more specific level, we see throughout the fourth gospel Jesus taking the initiative, anticipating, teaching through his actions and his signs. In chapter 4, for example, Jesus begins a conversation with the woman at the well by asking her to give him a drink of water. He knew what he was doing. He was leading a thirsty woman to the wellspring of eternal life. Jesus uses concrete situations so that new life can come into being through him. What is proclaimed in the prologue of the gospel is fulfilled time and again in the rest of the gospel. All things come to be through him. And so we will learn in chapter 6 that through his own initiative, Jesus asks a loaded question and then proceeds to give a loaded teaching on the Eucharist with the end in mind of bringing people to a fuller, deeper life. So let's take a look at John 6, wherein we find the most explicit exposition on the bread of life that is given for the life of the world. Keep in mind that John's Last Supper scene in chapters 13 through 17 contains no reference to the institution of the Eucharist that we see in the synoptic accounts. Upon crossing the Sea of Galilee, followed by a large crowd attracted by his healings of the sick, Jesus sits down the posture of a rabbi would take with his disciples. Seeing all the people coming to him, Jesus asked Philip one of his loaded questions, already knowing the answer. Where can we buy enough food for them to eat? Notice that the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle of Jesus recorded in all four Gospels. Notice, too, that in the synoptics, the disciples or the apostles are the ones who suggest that the people are hungry and that Jesus should dismiss them so they can buy food for themselves in the nearby villages. Only in John does Jesus raise the question himself, but he has more in mind than their stomachs. Andrew has noticed a boy in the crowd with five barley loaves and two fish, perhaps the lunch the boy's mother packed for him. But Andrew notes that it's hardly enough for so many. Here we see briefly another theme, that of scarcity versus abundance, human want and divine generosity. Here in chapter 6, it's human physical hunger, the paucity of resources, and the response of God to the need. John notes in his prologue, From his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace. In chapter 10, Jesus the Good Shepherd says, I came that they might have life and have it more abundantly. For Jesus, a few loaves and a couple of fish are more than enough to feed 5,000 men, plus women and children. Taking the bread and fish, Jesus gives thanks, distributes them, and all are satisfied. What is more, the disciples fill 12 baskets with leftovers. He wants nothing to go to waste. The crowd that has gathered around Jesus because they knew he had healed the sick are naturally impressed by this miraculous feeding. They proclaim him the prophet 
a designation that probably refers to the prophet like Moses mentioned in Deuteronomy 18.15, who would speak and act with authority of the great lawgiver. But Jesus escapes the scene lest the people try to make him a political leader with supernatural powers. Even so, he has their attention. The next episode of chapter 6 has Jesus walking on the Sea of Galilee. Only Matthew and Mark replicate this scene with John. Matthew tells us that Peter left the boat and walked a few steps toward Jesus. And Mark concludes the episode by telling us that the disciples were astounded, that they had not understood the incident of the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. In John 6, however, there is a different attitude among the shipmates. Upon seeing Jesus coming toward them, they're frightened, but he assures them, it is I, do not be afraid. And then they wanted to take him into the boat as it arrived at the shore to which they were heading. There are a couple of important points about this brief scene. First, it is characterized by Jesus' self-identification. It is I, or ego ami in Greek, can also be translated I am. This is one of several I am statements in John, such as I am the light of the world, the resurrection and the life, and so on. These statements give the listener an insight into Jesus' true identity and mission as the one sent by God into the world. In chapter 6, Jesus will say, I am the bread of life. I am is also the name God reveals to Moses at the site of the burning bush in Exodus 3. We are to understand Jesus' use of the term as a designation of the divine. In chapter 6, it's as if Jesus is saying to his disciples, I just fed thousands with meager resources. I'm walking on water. Who do you think I am? And with that, they wanted to take him into the boat. The desire to take Jesus into the boat raises the second point. It relates to something John tells us in the prologue. He came to what was his own, but his own people did not accept him. But to those who did accept him, he gave the power to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Wanting to take Jesus into the boat seems to relate to accepting him in the spirit intended by the prologue. The crowds had also accepted Jesus, but for reasons of power politics. The disciples are beginning to see and to accept Jesus for his own self and thus they will receive the power to become children of God. The next day, the crowds who had eaten of the bread and fish come looking for Jesus. They enter boats, cross the water, and arrive at Capernaum on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. It is at this point in the text that John begins the discourse on the bread of life. According to Francis Maloney in his commentary on the Gospel of John, the discourse is shaped by a set of five questions asked by the crowds. The first question, Rabbi, when did you get here, in verse 25, tips Jesus off as to their real interest. He answers by saying, You're looking for me not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. They see him as a miracle man and do not perceive the real meaning in the sign he performed. Unlike the disciples in the boat the previous night, the people have not accepted Jesus as the one who says, I am, but as one who meets temporary needs. He continues in verse 27, 
Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. He desires to raise the level of consciousness of the people so they can see beyond the level of the mundane life to that of the enduring deep life of the Spirit by eating of the will of God. Taking their cue from Jesus' caution not to work for perishable food, the crowds ask, What can we do to accomplish the works of God? To which he replies, That you believe in the one he sent. Such belief is nourishment itself, but Jesus has more to offer, as we shall see. This leads, in verse 30, to the second question mentioned by Maloney. The people ask Jesus, What sign can you do that we may see and believe in you? They then refer to the manna in the desert and how Moses gave them the bread from heaven to eat, a reference to Exodus 16. Jesus reminds them that it was not Moses who gave the manna, but the Heavenly Father who gives the true bread from heaven, which gives life to the world. It appears that Jesus is making a comparison between the manna and the law given by Moses on the one hand, and the true bread from heaven offered by the Father on the other. So when the crowds ask Jesus what sign he can give to top the manna given by Moses, he begins to instruct them that there is something greater than perishable manna, even something greater than the law of Moses being offered here. What sustained the Jewish ancestors in the desert is but a shadow of what Jesus is offering their descendants now. And so, in verse 34, they ask the third question in the form of a demand. Sir, give us this bread always. According to Maloney, this request indicates that the people misunderstand the nature of the bread from heaven because they want it again and again, whereupon Jesus offers them the once and for all gift, I am the bread of life. The request for heavenly bread again and again implies a cycle of hunger and satiety, such as occurred in the desert. Perhaps the crowd have a nostalgic desire to return to a simpler time in Israel's history, far less than what they're being offered now. Whoever comes to me will never hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. Compare never hungering and never thirsting with the people's request to have heavenly bread always. That is, a new miracle every day. As is often the case in John's Gospel, Jesus and his listeners are on two different levels of meaning. These listeners have physically watched Jesus feed thousands with very little, but they still do not see him as the replacement of the manna and the Torah, the grace in place of grace. Instead, in verse 42, they raise the fourth question in the discourse. Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph? Do we not know his father and mother? This question is called murmuring by John and is meant to remind the readers of Israel's past when they grumbled in the desert because of their hunger. Though they were complaining to Moses, he reminded the people that they were really grumbling against God. Now here in John 6, the same attitude is present as the Jews questioned Jesus' assertion that he is the bread that came down from heaven. Do they not know his mother and his father Joseph? How can he have come down from heaven? How can the son of two villagers dare to compare himself with the law and the manna, both of which came to the great prophet Moses? It is ironic that Jesus would quote the prophets in verse 45 in saying, They shall all be taught by God. 
perhaps these people have not learned and they're not listening. Most scholars agree that in John 6, 35 to 50, the figure bread of life refers to God's revelation in Jesus. As the manna which fed the Israelites in the desert is a symbol of the law of God given through Moses, here in John, the bread of life is God's teaching given through Jesus, the very word himself. In our translation of the gospel, we read in chapter 1, verses 16 to 17. From his fullness we have all received, grace in place of grace, because while the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The phrase, grace in place of grace, can mean a replacement of one gift with another. In this case, the old grace of the law with the new grace and truth in Jesus Christ. The first part of the Bread of Life discourse is about those drawn by the Father being fed with a new revelation that is more satisfying and life-giving than the desert manna of the law. But there's more to the discourse, and the fifth question introduces the next section and a further meaning of Bread of Life. In verse 51, Jesus says, The bread that I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. Here he's speaking about more than revelation prompting the Jews to quarrel among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So far, the discourse has covered some new ground regarding revelation and eternal life. But now Jesus crosses the line. Most people could see the connection between eating bread and being fed by God's law. But to eat a man's flesh? Abhorrent. Jesus replies, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life within you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Instead of assuaging his hearer's anger at the thought of eating and drinking a man's flesh, Jesus emphasizes his point by making the consumption of his flesh and blood a condition for having life in the present and being raised in the future. Moreover, he classifies his flesh and blood as true food and true drink. He's very clear and doesn't care whom he offends. John uses two verbs for the word eat in verses 52, 54, 56, and 58, phagain and shrogain. Phagain in verse 52 is the normal use of the word to eat. But when the other word shrogain is used in verses 54, 56, and 58, the meaning is heightened to have a coarser connotation, to munch or to gnaw. Those who would interpret phagain, eating, in a metaphorical sense, would not miss the evangelist point implied by the verb trogain. We are literally to chew and consume the body and blood of Jesus. The eaten and consumed flesh and blood of Jesus form a life-giving bond through him with the source of all life, God himself. For he says, just as the living Father sent me, and I have life because of the Father, so also the one who feeds on me will have life because of me. The final part of John 6 relates the departure of many of Jesus' disciples and the loyalty of the others. Some remind us of the words from the prologue, He came to what was his own, but his own people did not accept him. They're like the old wineskins mentioned in the Synoptic Gospels, 
who might burst if they receive new and challenging teachings of Jesus. They have a limited literal understanding which is of no avail to true faith. As some drift away, Jesus asked the twelve if they also wished to leave. Simon Peter, as he often does in the gospel, speaks for the rest. Master, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and are convinced that you are the Holy One of God. Unlike others who thought Jesus merely the son of Joseph, Peter, as a true disciple, acknowledges Jesus' origins, that he is of God. When Jesus fed the hungry crowd on the eve of Passover, he desired to lead them away from the sign of the loaves as mere food and harsh law to a new kind of Passover, a crossing over from the desert manna of the law of Moses to the new manna, the very bread that comes down from heaven, a new revelation by Jesus whose flesh and blood are the true food that nourish unto everlasting life. On a personal note, twice I've had the opportunity to visit the site in Capernaum where Jesus gave this instruction. The exact place where Jesus taught is now long gone, covered by the ruins of a fourth century synagogue. But Jesus' teaching lives on. As a priest, I am privileged to offer the bread of life in my preaching and in the Eucharist at Mass. There are so many who are hungry, and like any priest, I think I have little to give them. But the Lord supplies. It's His Word that I break open. It's His flesh and blood that I offer. He has asked me to make this available to His people. God's initiative always has a purpose, to give life, to restore life, to nourish life. In our celebration of the Mass, we are taught by God in the liturgy of the Word, and in the liturgy of the Eucharist, we are fed by God with the flesh and blood of His Son. Whoever abides in this Word, and eats this bread will live forever. <laughs>